Uh, it is time to take a moment to get, get, get into God's Word and look at it, and we're afforded this privilege today. I'm going to ask you now if you have your Bible or on your iPhone, if you have that with you, or smartphone, to turn to Genesis chapter 45. Uh, today we're going to end 45 and begin the beginning of 46. And then if you're at home, just if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word, we would gladly appreciate that. So Genesis chapter 45, and we're going to pick up at verse 25. So they, being the brothers, went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is a ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, when he saw the wagons that Joseph has sent to carry him. The spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now we move to chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let us ask his blessing on our time through speaking with him in prayer. Let's bow together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us another opportunity to set our minds on you. What an awesome privilege it is to consider you and what you're doing in the world as well as in our lives. Thank you for the love that you have shown us undeniably in the, the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the precious gift of your spirit. We appreciate the kindness that is your word. And we ask that you would be glorified today. Glorify yourself through what is said today. Bring honor to the name of your son. May lives be transformed. We ask that you would, might even reach into homes with those who may be listening today and do not yet have a relationship with you. Like Samuel and like Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they serve you, but they yet don't know you, and we need, they need you to introduce yourself to them. Would you move upon their hearts today and make yourself known to them? Would you reveal yourself through your Son by the power of your Spirit? Call them into relationship with him today. Save, Lord. I know that they don't have to be present in this building for you to do that. You can save anywhere, anytime, in any place, because you are just that powerful. God, would you move? Help me to communicate clearly today. Help me to fade into the background. Help the people to marvel solely at you and your greatness. We ask that you are honored in everything. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as I was preparing for the sermon uh, today, I just was reflecting on the fact that life is often filled with change. We can even see this in the way uh, that we live out our years our years can basically be broken down into two different segments. There are the growing up years 
And then there are the growing old years. And throughout the years as we live out our lives, along the way we face different things that bring about transition or change in our life. Let me offer to you a few examples. For instance, uh, when you're old enough, I remember in my life, you have the chance to really have that first independence as as it is in our culture where you head off to college or you join the military and you move from being under your parents' authority and in their home to living on your own and learning what it means to move into life, starting the life of becoming an adult. Uh, In the process of life, uh, we start jobs, or some of us, we start businesses, and those are new adventures, and they bring about change in our life. Uh, For some of us, we marry, and that brings about change. And then for others of us, we go on to have children, and that brings about change. And then for some of us, if we live long enough, our children have children, and that brings another phase of change in life. Some of us, we've had the chance to move to, to new places and live in places that we did not grow up. Some of us face health challenges, and that brings a change in life. Uh, as we know, as things are coming up, and we're just reminded that this year that there are changes in governmental officials who have different government offices. Uh, we look at society, and we think about what it was like when we were growing up, and then we look at it today, and we see that it, it has changed. And we look at the broader world around us and we see that things are not even the same as they were just in the years that we grew up, let alone our parents or our grandparents. And sadly, one of the other changes that we face in life is that we lose people that we love. And on the other side of the funeral, we have to adjust to life without that person and we have to face that change. And then there's just a reality that we all face, although we might not like to think about it, is that we all face the change of death ourselves. Life is filled with change and transition. And one of the things that can be common to the experience of change, at least from a human perspective, is that these can come along with fear. The reality is that when we face change or transition in life, because we're unsure or uncertain of how that change will impact our lives, it can cause us to feel a sense of worry, anxiety, or fear. I remember, for instance, when I headed off to seminary uh, a number of years ago, when I first was moving from Houston to Dallas to attend seminary, I was excited about the transition and about the chance to study God's Word in a new way and, and to learn things that I had not been exposed to before. And then at the same time, in the back of my mind, there was still this this worry, this fear that I had. I wondered... You know, when I move to Dallas, will I be able to find a job that will allow me to work uh, and be able to attend school? Will that job, if it's a part-time job, will it be enough money to support me? Will I have enough to be able to survive? And so there was some fear associated with that transition and change. Thankfully, our text today reminds us of something that is true for the people of God that can help us as we approach these moments in life where there is change or transition on the horizon, and we get to face those things uh, with a different perspective. And for that, I want to return today to our series in the book of Genesis. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Genesis. As a matter of fact, the last time we had a chance to, to read from the book of Genesis was all the way back in January. And I thought it appropriate to take a few moments just to review some of the things that we've covered in this series so that we might stimulate our memories uh, as we approach our text for today. So let me take a few minutes and just walk us back through uh, in a synopsis form of what we've encountered so far. Let me start with Abraham. So Abraham, as you remember, was a, a pagan 
who God chose and called to have a relationship with himself because God had a larger plan in mind, which we see work out the scripture, which is the redemption of humanity. Uh, in Abraham's life, when we looked at Abraham's life, we discovered that he had some instances of fear. But ultimately, the long story of his life was that Abraham was a man of faith. And what we find that was significant, that becomes significant throughout the book of Genesis, is that God, throughout Abraham's life, made promises to him and reiterated those promises time and time again. And like many of us, Abraham went on to have children, and we took time to focus on his second son, uh, whose name was Isaac. And the reason why we focused on him was because of the fact that Isaac was the one who inherited these promises of God. In Isaac's life, the, the best way I can remember him is two main things happened in his life that we have from Scripture. Of course, we know there were other things, but this is what Scripture focused on. Was one, God provided an, a wife for Isaac. And the second was there were some disputes about wells in his life. And like his father before him, Isaac went on to have children after he had inherited the promise. And through his wife, Isaac had fraternal twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And the boys grew up in a home that had favoritism in it, and we did many sermons about that, which caused tension in their relationship, which ultimately led to uh, Jacob taking advantage of both his brother and his father at different points in his life. And because of that, because of that that happened in their relationship, he ended up having to flee from home, one, to save his life, and ultimately also to find a wife. And on his way, as he was fleeing to the destination set out by his parents, for him, God introduced himself to him and told Jacob that he was the one who was the next son in law to inherit the promise that was given to Abraham, passed down to Isaac, and now he would be the new uh, addition to this line of promises from God. And he would spend 20 years away from home. He would work there and he would marry and God would bless him with children, 12 sons and daughters uh, to add on and God would bless him with great wealth. And we saw that Jacob's relationship with God was not an instant thing. It was something that developed over time. And eventually after all that happened, those 20 years or so passed, uh, he ended up returning home to repair his relationship with his brother. And we found that out of those 12 sons, then Scripture shifted the focus to one of those 12 sons, Joseph. Uh, and we find out that like his home in Jacob's house, there was favoritism. And because of that favoritism, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt. But the text tells us that God was with him. He spent 11 years as a slave, then two years in prison. And finally, by God's grace, he was promoted to something of like the prime minister of Egypt. And after seven years of serving in that position, the region endured a great famine. But Egypt was prepared for this because of the wisdom that God had given to Joseph. But we look back at home and we found out that his brothers, his father, his sisters, his mother, the rest of the family was unprepared for this famine because they didn't have the same knowledge that he had. And this meant that his family was forced to seek provision in the way that the rest of the world was, which was to come to Egypt to buy food. We found out that his brothers did not recognize him, but he recognized them. And he used that knowledge that he had to test his brothers to see if they had changed in all the years that they had been apart. 
And thankfully, they had changed. And Joseph finally revealed his identity to his brothers. Uh, and of course, they were shocked to find him not only alive, but that he was actually ruling Egypt along Pharaoh's side. And Joseph proposed an invitation to his brothers to go back home and to invite his father and the rest of the family to relocate from Canaan to Egypt so that he could provide for them because there were still five years left of the famine. That brings us to our text today, verse 25. Let me reread just the beginning part of that to set our minds to where we are in the text. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. So let's take a moment to reflect on what's happening in Jacob's life. 22 years have passed. It's been 22 years of grieving for his favorite son. I wondered over those 22 years, how many tears had he shed? How many nights was he unable to find rest and fall off to sleep because grief kept him awake? How many times did he not have an appetite to eat and missed meals because grief was weighing on his heart? How long did the aching go on, the burden of that pain in his heart? How many times did he almost call Joseph's name only to remember that Joseph was no more? How many times had he been about the daily activities and he started to just cry for no apparent reason? How many times did he tell himself, I just need to make it to tomorrow? Think about it. No more afternoon talks. No more opportunities for hugs. No more seeing his smiling face. And I think about the sadness of it all. He didn't even have the opportunity for closure. There was no funeral. Just only the pain of loss. If you've ever lost someone that you really love, I'm sure you can identify with the pain that Jacob felt in his heart. It's not something that you easily overcome. Uh, it's a bitter and hard reality to swallow. Perhaps after these 22 years, he had just reached a point where he was learning to live with the burden of grief that he carried in his heart as he thought about the son that he loved so much being deceased. Probably the family had adjusted to living without Joseph at this point. He was probably always spoken of in the past tense. Do you remember how Joseph used to run across that field over there? You remember when Joseph was little, how he used to love to annoy the sheep? Probably one of his brothers had to pick up the responsibilities that he once carried. Perhaps Benjamin, his younger brother, now was the one who filled Joseph's shoes in the family. But we do know from the text that Joseph was never forgotten. It was just then, after these 22 years of grief, after these 22 years of pain, after these 22 years of sorrow, that Jacob receives news from Egypt. Joseph is still alive. Not only alive, but ruling Egypt. It was almost as if the sunlight had broken through what was a storm-covered sky for the first time 
in 22 years. The news was too unbelievable to accept. Jacob could not embrace it at first. Joseph alive? How could that be? But the evidence was overwhelming. As each donkey that Joseph sent walked into the camp, weighted down with items from Egypt and food and provisions for the family as one followed another. It was as if each donkey screamed to this grief-stricken father's heart, Joseph lives. Joseph lives. Joseph lives. So finally, the message got through. Yes, Joseph was still alive. The, the son who was once thought dead lives and rules over all Egypt. Jacob said, enough, enough. I accept it. And I want to make this transition because I want to see my son before I die. And so he loaded up the entire family and began to make his way down to Egypt. But on the way, he did something that was significant. He stopped to worship God. He stopped at a place that as we look through the book of Genesis, that was familiar to him. It was a place that his father had worshipped. It was a place that his grandfather had called upon the name of the Lord. It was Beersheba. And there, after worshiping the Lord, the Lord appeared to him in grace by night to say something to him that becomes the focus of our time together today. Look back at me with verse 3. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, among the promises, as God is reiterating things he's already stated to Jacob in his life earlier, we find again here a provision of God where God promises his presence with, Joseph, with Jacob as he reassures him because it seems that Jacob has some fear, some worry, some anxiety about relocating to a place that he's not lived before. And you can understand this in light of the previous text because uh, if he thought about his grandfather's life, Abraham had gone down to Egypt and he had experienced trouble there. And then when Isaac, his father, had experienced when Jacob was alive, there was a famine in the land and, and Isaac wanted to go to Egypt. The Lord prohibited him. So you could understand his trepidation in wanting to travel now to Egypt. He didn't know what would befall him as he left the land that God had promised. But God reassures him that this is part of his plan, and he's going to travel with Jacob down to Egypt. Now, this promise becomes significant in light of what we know about the ancient world, as, as best as I understand it, the view of the deities of that time. The view of the deities at that time was that uh, they were territorial. Uh, they were uh, locked into certain locales, if you will. Uh, that God could be God in Canaan, but he wasn't God in Egypt because there were other gods there occupying that space. But what we find here in the text is something that challenges the ancient way of thinking, where God says that he is a God who travels. He's not just God in Canaan. He's also God in Egypt. And because of this reality, we realize that God is God everywhere, which means that he can be God anywhere when his people need him. He's God in Hawaii. He's God in Egypt. He's God in China. God is God no matter where you go because God is able to travel with his people. 
But what does this promise of God's presence, this traveling presence of God mean for his people? Let me look at a a few examples from Jacob and Joseph's life to kind of help us interpret what that might mean for us today. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 31 and look at verses 4 through 16, which we're not going to read, but let me sum sum it up for you. You would discover there how God delivered Jacob from the possible mistreatment of unfair wages that Laban had been plotting against him. God took Laban's plan of trying to change the wages of Jacob and made it work out so that ultimately Jacob was blessed and became wealthy through Laban's plot. And if you kept reading in that chapter, you would finally come to to verse 29, where you would find there in the text how Laban had had ill intent in his heart to do bodily harm to Jacob, but God intervened and prevented him from bringing any harm to Jacob. And then if you were to read the following two chapters of 32 and 33, you would see there where Jacob, uh, in fear about returning to see his brother because of what had happened in the past, they had had bad history, that he was concerned about what would happen as he saw his brother after all these years, that his brother had not forgotten how he had taken advantage of him. And he asked God to deliver him. And we see it through this, the ordering of circumstances, how God worked that out as Esau responded kindly to his brother when they met. We find a nice summary of Jacob, Jacob's view about all of what happened in his life as he headed off to worship. Genesis chapter 35, verse 3. Let me read that to you. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Gone. Do you notice how he connected those two things together? God's deliverance in his moment of distress because God was present with him. We see some other instances in Jacob's life where there were some bad things that befell him, and in those moments, God would appear and give him guidance about what he should do in those times. But let us look at Joseph's life to kind of hone in and make sure we're heading in the right direction. We'll take a few examples from his life. We'll pick those up from Genesis chapter 39. Here, let me read some of the text for you. We'll pick up at verses 2 and 3, and notice how the Lord interacts with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. We see something similar in verses 21 and 23, but let me read the entirety to you. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. When we look at Joseph's life, we see that the Lord's presence meant for him favor with those who were in authority over him. It meant success in his management of others. It meant success in his work projects that were passed under his care. And it also meant, which we didn't read in this text, but what is in the text, is wisdom to interpret dreams that ultimately became the way that he would rise to power. If I were to then put all this evidence together in light of of what we know, I would say this, that the promise of God's presence means 
means that God is present to help in a variety of forms that his people might need. But as we see for our lives, it does not mean from their lives that, that that does not exempt us from experiencing hardships in life. But it does mean that God will go with us through the hardships that we face. See, God's presence makes all the difference in the world. Let me offer to you a few other examples. Consider this. How did the children of Israel escape all those years of slavery in Egypt? God was with them. How was David able to defeat the giant Goliath? Because God was with him. Why did Daniel survive a feeding encounter with lions? Because God was with him. Why was Peter able to escape an unfair imprisonment? Because God was with him. How did Paul and his companions survive stormy weather that led to the ship being broken up in a storm that normally would have taken people's lives, but no life was taken? Every life was spared because God was with them. And why is it in the parable that Lazarus ends up in paradise while the rich man ends up in hell? Because God was his helper. See, one of the things that's clear in life is that we need God's presence in life and even after life. Think about the larger narrative of the Bible. In Genesis, the first humans enjoyed God's presence, but because of sin, we lost access to his presence. In the Gospels, we see how God came in Jesus to be with us and to restore access to his presence so that in the Revelation, at the very end, the book ends, the Bible ends with God and his people in his presence forever. The message of the Bible is clear. We need God's presence. But does this promise of God's presence apply to us today as followers of Jesus Christ? So we see the promise was given, of course, to Jacob in his life after receiving the good news that the son he once thought was dead was really still living and ruling over all of Egypt. And now the living son, Joseph, would be the means by which God would take care of Joseph for the remaining 17 years of his life and the rest, of the, fa- their, the rest of the family for the rest of their lives. We have a similar situation. God's son, Jesus, actually died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Now he lives forevermore, both as Romans and Hebrews attest to, and he rules over all God's creation. And because of our familiar relationship with him by faith, We will live and enjoy God's presence because the living son of God will take care of us. We find the promise of God's presence at the end of the gospel of Matthew. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. Let me read it to you. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In conjunction with the command to make disciples of Jesus, this mission that we have from God, Jesus allows his disciples to know that they can pursue this mission because he promises to give us his presence. Now, how did God choose to abide with us until he uh, decides at the Father's 
appointed time to reveal Jesus from heaven at the end of the age. Well, Jesus told the disciples earlier how his presence would be with them. He said it in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. Notice what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. The way in which God has decided and Christ has decided to, to be with us present all the time, God's traveling presence comes at us wherever we go through the, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's how God is with us at all times in all places. His Spirit is with us. Now, what does God's presence mean for us? Well, it has meaning for us just like it did for Jacob and for Joseph. Look at how the writer of Hebrews applies this promise in light of the circumstances that the Hebrews were facing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Notice what he says in this text. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When we look back at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, we discover that these believers had recently suffered financial loss because of their faith in Jesus Christ. However, the writer of Hebrews does not want them to abandon their confidence in God because the promise of his presence means that he will help them as they face life and ultimately that God will help them in the fact that he has promised to give them an abiding reward in heavenly treasure. So the question then becomes, if you want to have God's presence in your life, the question for you is, are you among God's people by having faith in Jesus? And if you can answer yes to that question, then these promises of God's presence are for you. God is your helper as well. And the reason that you can face uncertainty and transition in the future in life with a different perspective is because God is with you. You're not alone. I'm not alone because God is with us. Over the past years that I've served here at Living Water, I've shared with you on several occasions different story about how the years I've experienced God's faithfulness because God's presence has been with me, how he has helped me in time. Let me recount in summary form some of those things that have happened in my life just to encourage you again. I began by first starting off telling you about the fear and the worry that I had as I transitioned from Houston to Dallas, unfamiliar with that environment, not sure if I would be able to find a job to, to have income and be able to, to make it and survive and be able to finish seminary. But the Lord provided through providential circumstances that I've shared in the past. Over the years, the Lord has granted me favor such that I was able to find employment here and serve at this wonderful church called Living Water Community Church. When I remember when I was in seminary and I needed guidance about whether or not to continue in seminary because my finances were not in the place that were saying at that time I should continue. And I asked God to help God deliver it on both. He provided guidance and finances to continue and finish seminary. When I needed help in my marriage and I called upon the Lord, he heard me and he intervened. When we needed a car, as I've shared with you on previous occasions, the Lord provided transportation. He has helped me on numerous occasions to write sermons, and there are many more examples that I can share with you, but the one that I would share, and I would say most important is my life, in my life has been this. In the day when I cried out to God to save me from my sins, he intervened and saved me. 
And so I say, in my distress, the Lord heard me and saved me from all of my troubles. And that's why I love Psalm 121, the opening verse. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. See, it is true that in the name of Jesus, in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the name Emmanuel, God with us. And that's why you don't have to fear the uncertainty of the future or any transition that you're facing in life if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, because the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. I want to close by giving you a challenge today. Take some time to reflect on how God has helped you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and your distress. And then I want to ask you to do something unusual. I want to ask you to, in two or three sentences, send an email to Miss Eleanor at Eleanor at livingwatercc.com and let us know about how God has helped you in your moments of distress. And we'll take time to post those in our prayer request list this week so that others can be encouraged as well. Remember, That through God, by God, through Jesus Christ, you have the promise of his presence. And that presence is the Holy Spirit residing with you. And that presence is a powerful presence to aid you in times of need and distress. God is your helper. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promise of your presence. It's not something that we deserve. It is the gift that you have given And Lord, that is so encouraging because we face so many changes in life, so much uncertainty, so many things that we cannot control as human beings. But Lord, we don't have to be in control. We can rest in the fact that you are in control and that because we have a relationship with you, that we have the promise of your presence to help us in our distress, that you will see us through the hardships of life. It doesn't mean that we won't have hard times, that we won't be affected as other people through them. But because of the promise of your presence, we know that we will make it. We will survive. Though the righteous fall seven times, he will stand up because you make us stand up. And Lord, even if death claims our life, you have already promised that you will raise us from the dead. Give us new glorified bodies like that of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can stand in your presence forever. As, we, as I recounted the story of Lazarus, Lord, I was reminded that you helped him, not in this life, but after life, as he was carried into paradise. Lord, we can trust you in life and after life. And we're so thankful that you would come and be with us, even though we had messed that up, that you would make a way through Jesus so that we could have you in our lives. Thank you for being with us. We trust you now. In Jesus' precious name.